your Bibles, I want to base what I'm saying on Psalm 14, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, open your Bibles in the middle. You should be in Psalms. And uh, I'm basing what I'm saying on Psalm 14. Over the last couple of days, when I've been sharing with you, I've been focusing on what I call the Bible's doctrine of humanity. We've been looking a lot at man, by which I mean men and women, the human race. Although I need to say, if you, if you haven't been around, what I'm saying this morning is complete in itself, so you don't need to feel you've missed anything. But um, I have been talking about man. And the human person is the most mysterious entity that there is in the universe. And uh, you might think that you understand yourself. If you don't understand anything else, you might think that you understand yourself. You may say, well, uh, science and chemistry and physics and maths, I don't understand those very much, but at least I understand myself. But actually, that's not true. The human person is the greatest mystery. It reminds me of a, of a book that was written in about the 1930s. You, you never see it around these days unless you really are a book collector. But uh, in the 1930s, a man by the name of Alexis Carroll wrote a book on the human person. He was a very brilliant man. He was a doctor. He was a Roman Catholic. He was a Nobel Prize winner. He had a Nobel Prize for his researches into medicine. He was a very brilliant doctor. And he wrote a book in the 1930s surveying everything that was known about the human person. He was a doctor, so he began with physical things. He surveyed the various uh, systems in the human body, the circulatory system and the breathing system and all the other systems that are in the human body. And then he, he moved on to psychology and things like uh, mesmerism, when, when, when you sort of hypnotize people. And then he moved on to miracles and the spiritual things. He went to, he went to Lourdes, the Roman Catholic center, where they, uh, they reckon that they can... Uh, miracles, and certainly he reports very mysterious things. And so he surveys everything. But what interests me is two things about that book in the 1930s. First of all, the title. He calls it Man, the Unknown. Although he's surveying every single thing that's known about the human race, at the end of it all, he still titles his book The Unknown. And at one point he says, he says the human person is like a magic forest where you go in and it's thick darkness and every tree is moving. He says it's like a, a thick forest where you can't see anything and every forest is moving, every tree is moving. That's, that's his way of trying to describe the human person. Here's a scientist trying to uh, uh, outline everything know, that's known about the human person. But he still calls it man the unknown. And he still says it's like getting lost in a dark forest where you can't see anything, every tree is moving around. The very person of man... Is, is very mysterious. And you might think that you understand yourself. But I would like to say to you that you don't. <laughs> you do not understand yourself unless you see yourself in the presence of God. Unless you let God tell you things about yourself. And uh, yeah, unless you, you let God reveal things to yourself... You, you won't actually understand yourself. And when you're reading the Bible, you'll find that one of the things that's constantly being said is how 
mysterious the human person is. I, I could give you many examples. Think of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he says, who can understand it? It's, it's beyond comprehension. Or think of that passage in Romans chapter 7. The good that I would, I don't do. And what I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But in the middle, he says, I don't even understand myself. Have you ever been gripped with the conviction that you don't even know you, why you're doing what you're doing? You, do so, you, you swear that you won't do something. Maybe you have a fight with your wife or something, and you say, oh, I won't do that again. Then you do it the next day. You, something you promise yourself you won't do, you actually do it. And uh, you make New, New Year's revolution, resolutions, and you've broken it by January the 2nd. And you think, well, no, no I, you know, I, thought, I thought I was going to do this. And you don't even understand yourself, and you, you're, you're perplexed at why you're, why you're doing it. You, or one day you wake up and you say, how did I get myself into this mess? I think of a story of a man who was an, a drunken alcoholic, only he, he changed his ways. And what made him change his ways is he was going out to the bar one night, and as he was walking out going to the pub or the disco or something, he walked out of the hall, and then he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. And he was such an alcoholic, and he was so, he was looking so, uh, how, can, how can I describe an alcoholic? He, he was looking so degraded and perverse and uh, this drunken guy going out for more beer. He caught one look at himself in the mirror and he turned around and went back and never went to a pub again. You ever, do you ever catch a look at yourself in some kind of mirror and you're a bit surprised at what you see? Well, my text then is Psalm 14, verse 1, where the psalmist says, The fool says in his heart... No God, and that's, that's a, a literal translation. Uh, our translations tend to say there is no God. But actually, in the Hebrew, it's not, a, it's not a, a statement, there is no God. It's an exclamation. The fool has said, no God, I, I don't want God. It's not necessarily denying that God exists. It's more a statement that you don't want him. The, the fool has said in his heart, no God. People who don't want God. Maybe they believe in God. Even Christians at times can say, no God, I don't want God to come into this. And you, for the moment you're saying, no God. So it's not a statement of atheism. Or I could say it's a statement of practical atheism. Practically you're acting like an atheist no matter what your theory is. The fool has said in his heart, no God. And he goes on to describe what he calls the fool. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there's anybody who understands. You see, there again is another reference to not understanding. God looks down to see, is there anybody who understands, who seeks after God? They've turned aside, they've become corrupt. Do they have, do they have no knowledge for all these evildoers? They're in great terror. Here are people that uh, are in a bad state. But it begins, the fool has said in his heart, no God. The reason why I focus upon this particular verse is because I'm interested this morning, and I was saying something about it yesterday, I'm interested this morning in what I would call the different aspects of man. When you look at the human person, uh, there are different aspects to him. People don't think about this very much. Even the psychologists don't think about it very much. But the Bible, I believe the Bible goes even deeper than most psychologists do. And the Bible looks at the many different aspects of man. It uses words like the body. And it often talks as though the body is different from us. It will say things like we have to handle the deeds of the body, mortify the deeds of the body, almost as though the body is something distinct from us. The Bible often does that. Or it will talk about the conscience. You see, the scientists and the evolutionists, they don't talk much about the conscience, do they? 
You get these great uh, atheistical biologists, uh, they treat man as just material, just a kind of complicated animal, but, but animals don't have consciences, as far as we know. Animals don't think about the future. Your cat does not pray. Your cat does not repent. Your dog doesn't say, I wonder what I'll do tomorrow. No, no these things are not in animals. There's something in the, in the human person that's not in the, in the cat or the dog or even the most intelligent animals, the, the, the chimpanzee or the dolphin, which are very intelligent. But uh, certain things in, in the human person that are not in, in any animal. But uh, the conscience, the body, the soul, the spirit, the mind... And then there are certain things in the Bible where there's no special word. We have a word in English, but the Bible doesn't have any special word for them. The feelings, the emotions, sadness, sorrow, enthusiasm, depression, these things which are the emotions. And then the will, again, it's not a Bible word, but but we have an English word for it. We decide, we do things, we determine, we resolve. Actions of the will. These various... uh, aspects of man, the will, the heart, the mind. And the Bible uses one or two that we don't use in English, although often the translations cover it up and you can't quite see it. But the Bible will talk about the kidneys. When you read your Bible and Jeremiah is saying, oh my heart, I'm so, I've got such pain in my heart. The Hebrew word actually says the kidneys. My kidneys, my kidneys is what Jeremiah is really saying. We, we wouldn't talk like that. Although we do sometimes talk, to, don't we? We sometimes say, I have a gut feeling about, we sometimes use that phrase. And we're talking about it, our, our sort of innards as, as though they have got some kind of personality there. And the Bible talks a lot about these aspects of man. The one that I'm interested in this morning, I spoke the other day about the conscience and, the, and I've spoken about the body in various places. But the one I'm interested in today is the heart. The fool has said in his heart there is no God, say, say our translations, or no God, says the literal Hebrew. The Bible has a lot to say about the hearts. And in English, we often use the word heart to mean the feelings. It's not the way the Bible uses it. The word the, the heart in the Bible is not just the feelings, it's deeper than the feelings. It's very mysterious, it's something which you can't completely understand. The Bible's full of things which it, it, it reveals to you, and yet you can't completely understand them. And yet, if you will believe them, if you believe it, you find it fits and it proves itself to be true. There are many things like that. We, no one really understands electricity. Even the greatest scientist doesn't really understand electricity. And yet it works, and when you do things, and when you find out its rules and regulations, you can use it, even though you don't completely understand it. The Bible's like that. It often reveals things to you that you can't completely understand. But if you believe it and use it and go as far as it tells you, you'll find, you can see that it's true and it's right. And it's that way with the word heart. We don't really understand it, but the Bible says a lot about the heart. What is the heart? It is the deepest part of the human personality. And if you ask me to explain that, I don't think I can, but uh, as far as as I can put put it into words, it's the deepest aspect of the human person. It's what really controls the human person at the bottom of his, of his soul, the bottom of his personality. Remember Jesus once didn't wash his hands when they were having a meal. They were having a meal and uh, the Pharisees noticed that Jesus didn't wash his hands. And they were a bit annoyed with him because Jewish people always wash their hands in a religious sort of way before they ate anything. And so they were a bit annoyed with him. And it says that, uh, Mark chapter 7, it says that the Pharisees washed don't eat unless they wash their hands. And they noticed that Jesus was not washing his hands. And so they complained at him. 
And Jesus called the people to him. I'm reading Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus called the people to him. And this is what he said. He said, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. You, you don't get, if, you, if you get some uncleanness, you get a bit of dirt from your car engine or something, and then you go and eat a meal, well, it's not going to touch your heart. It doesn't affect your soul. Nothing from outside affects the real you and the depths of your personality. There's nothing outside in which you can defile him. Thing, it is the things that come out of the person that defile him. It's not what goes into your heart, it's what comes out of your heart that defiles you, says Jesus. And uh, the disciples ask him about it. And Jesus says, are you also without understanding? There, there again, you see, you have another reference to the way in which we don't understand these things. We don't really understand ourselves. Are you also without understanding, says Jesus? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him? Since it does not enter into his heart. It goes into his stomach, says Jesus. And then Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from the heart of man, come evil thoughts and immorality and theft and murder, adultery, covetousness, and on he goes. All these evil things come from within. They are what defile a person. There's the Bible's teaching, Jesus' teaching, about the heart. So there's something in the human person, it's the depth of his soul, and really everything that we are is coming out of this kind of a bottom of our soul, from the heart, from within. Everything that we're doing is coming. There's a proverb in the book of Proverbs that says, guard the heart, because out of it are all of the, the issues, the outcomes of life. Proverbs Chapter 4, I think that is. Romans chapter 10 says that we believe with the heart. When you become a Christian, you only truly are saved and a Christian if you are believing with the heart. Not just believing with the intellect. You, You can agree that the gospel is true, but not be saved. Because you don't get saved by the intellect. The intellect comes into it, but uh, it's, not, it's not the d- determining factor. You don't get saved by your feet. What I mean by that is, you go to some, some evangelistic rally, and the guy says, now, if you want to believe, walk forward. And you walk forward, and, and, and you're, you're walking, and you think, oh, I'm saved now. No, you don't get saved by your feet. You see what I mean? You don't get saved just by making a decision. You say, oh, I, decide, I decide I'm going to go to church now. I'm going to read my Bible. You don't get saved by a decision. You get saved when something pierces your heart and you know that the gospel is true and you're willing to give your life to Jesus out of the heart. A man believes with the heart. Remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter was preaching. Peter's preaching, the one that you crucified, God has highly exalted him. He has poured out this, this which you now see and hear. And we read, and they were pierced to the hearts. And they cried at all men and brethren, what shall we do? They are pierced to the heart. Or the Bible speaks of an evil heart of unbelief. If you don't believe, the reason why you don't believe is because your heart is, is not responding to God. An evil heart of unbelief, says the Bible. Or the Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There's something there where you can, in the, in the bottom of your soul, you can resist God. You, you think God's speaking to you, but you don't like it, and you, you, you resist it. And you're doing something with the bottom of your life. You're hardening your hearts, so it says the Bible. We read that when Moses went to Pharaoh in the Old Testament story of the Exodus, and said, let my people go, we read that Pharaoh hardened his hearts. 
And then we read that God, God handed, handed him over to his own hardness of heart. So, there is such a thing as the heart. It is the depth of the person. It's what is behind your emotions, it's underneath your intellect, it's what leads to the decisions you make. It's what, what really makes you to be you. And the Bible often talks to us as though we were two people. Sometimes it talks to us as though we are three people. But uh, a lot of the time the Bible talks to us as though we are two people. And it says, don't you harden your heart, as though there's two people there. Or it will say, what, can, what can it, does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but he loses his soul? And he's, he's drawing a distinction between uh, the circumstances of life, our, our wealth, our poverty, our health. We may make life very nice for us, we get rich, we have a comfortable home, we go on nice holidays and we, we're gaining everything. What's the good of gaining everything in your circumstances if you lose yourself? What will it profit a man if he gain all these things from outside into his life? He gains the whole world, but he loses his soul. Jesus said that. You see, the Bible often talks as, as though we're, we're, we're a duality. And that comes in when a person dies. You see, when you die, your body is finished with, or this, this body is finished with. You get a new body when you're in heavenly glory, but for the moment, your body dies, and they put you under the ground in a box and that's the end of that and they even cremate you I think cremation is a terrible thing but that's, that's what they do uh, and that, that body is, is, is finished, gone, it's just a pile of ashes the question is are you still around? do you still exist? your body's gone now you've been cremated, someone's been cremated is that the end of you or are you still somewhere? Not, not your body, but you. Is there a difference between your body and you? Well, the world doesn't really want to believe that the you goes on. They don't want to believe much in life after death. And they want to live it up in this life, and they often think that's all there is. Well, you can think about that. Do you believe that you are still around somewhere, even though your body is finished and gone? Well, the Bible makes that kind of distinction, almost as though there's bits to us. It's just a way of thinking. I, I don't know that we completely understand it. We have to think in picture language and in the way in which God puts things to us. But the fool has said in his heart what makes him to be the way he is and say, no God, I don't want God. And he's speaking and saying what he's saying. What makes him do it is because his heart has a certain character to it. The fool has said in his heart. So then, my first point is, there's such a thing as the heart. There's such a thing as the real you. Your body is part of you. I'm not, I'm not saying your body is, is not a you. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the body. But uh, the body is more temporary than you. You will last longer than your body, says the Bible. So the next thing I want you to see from, from this, this verse, this verse seems to me to put a lot in a short space. The next thing I want you to see is that it's the state of your heart that determines what you say and the way in which you, you, you relate to life. The fool, here's a man, he's a fool. He's not but any wisdom, he's stupid. And as the psalm goes on, you can see why. He gets into corruption, he doesn't seek after God, he's turning aside, he has no knowledge, he persecutes God's people, he's often in great fear, verse 5. 
he, he has no hope in his plans. His God is his only possible answer. The Lord is his refuge. In all other respects, he's a fool. There's such a thing as being a fool. And what determines whether you're a fool or not is the state of your heart. And the opposite of being a fool is to be wise. There's such a thing as folly, stupidity. And there's such a thing as wisdom. But what determines what you are and how wise you are is the state of your heart. The fool, this man's a fool. And the reason why he's a fool is because of what's going on in his heart. The fool has said, no God, I don't want God. And that's the very thing that makes him a fool. Well, what is foolishness, or put it the other way around, what is wisdom? It's not the same as knowledge. You can get somebody who really doesn't have much education, and in Africa, where I come from, somebody who never went to school in his life, or just dropped out at the end of primary school, can just about read, but nothing more. And yet, they can be very wise. You can get someone who's the head of a village in some African out in the African bush somewhere. There's a man there, he's, he's, he's the head of the whole village. He's a, he's a wise guy. He, he tells the people what to do, and he's, he's full of wisdom. He really knows how to lead his people. Yet he has no education. He never went to school. If you ask him, if, if you ask him how are your kidneys, he wouldn't even know where they are. That <laughs> doesn't even know his own body. And yet somehow he, he knows a lot. He knows things that some Westerners don't know. I know what it is to go into an African village and someone will say to me, you know, we, don't, we never get malaria in this village. And I say, oh, how comes? And he'll say, well, you know, we scrape the bark of this tree, make a drink out of it and drink it, we never get malaria. And, and nobody understands it, even Western scientists don't understand it, yet it works. And that village, they never get malaria in that village because they drink some juice from the bark of some tree. They don't even know why, why it works and nor does anybody else. And yet somehow it does work and everybody knows it. And you go to some wise guy who has learned a lot about life and he, he can help you in all sorts of things. No, he does, he's not educated. He's not full of science or knowledge. It's not the same as knowledge. You can, you can know very little and yet be greatly wise. You can be able to handle people. You, you all know what it's like when you get somebody who's just good at handling people. You walk in in a, in, a, in, a, in a bad temper and you want to shout at somebody because you're angry and some guy just calms you down. He knows how to handle you. He's very skillful at handling people. And it's also true the other way around. You can know a lot. You can be a brilliant scientist. You can be a professor at a university, and yet you've got no wisdom. Here you are in university, and you're, you know, you've got your overhead projector, and you're doing your mathematics and your science, and you write all these brilliant equations on the, on the chalkboard or the, or the overhead screen or whatever. And then you go back and you start quarreling with your wife. Or worse still, you go to somebody who's not your wife. You, you, your whole life is in a mess. Yet you're a university professor. The people who commit suicide most are the intellectuals and the rich people. Poor people don't commit suicide anywhere near as much as rich people do. The great philosophers, if you read the story of Plato and Aristotle and all these people, their lives are a real mess. They don't have happy lives. They often commit suicide. And they are brilliant intellectuals, yet they, there's no wisdom there. They're the people meant to be doing wisdom, philosophers, philosophia, love of wisdom. They, they think they're the wisest guys around. Actually, they're only wise at a certain level. They know a lot, and they can ask all sorts of questions and come up with some theories. But actually, their life is in a mess, and they can't control their temper, and they can't control their lusts. They've got all sorts of problems. They're, they're, they're clever, they're intellectual, but they're not wise. And modern man is like that. You can put a man upon the moon, you can fly someone to live in Mars, as they seem to be wanting to do at the moment. 
and yet at the same time every 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 age of the world is at war. There's never been a time in the history of the human race where some nation somewhere has not been fighting somebody. There's never been a year in the entire history of the human race where some nation has not been at war. And the sorrow and the sadness and the the way in which slavery is coming back. Have you noticed how much slavery is coming back? There's more slaves in the world today than there was before William Wilberforce abolished slavery. And they make billions and billions of dollars of money out of slaves. Southern Sudan, Indonesia, the slaves all over the world. The amount of children that get kidnapped and sold as for sexual purposes. I mean, the world is in a disgusting state, is it not? Don't you read your newspapers? Don't you watch TV? And yet here, here we are, these brilliant scientists with their technology. I can press a button on my phone and talk to somebody in the Africa bus right now. In my pocket is a phone. I could talk to anybody in Africa within seconds. The world is so clever and so stupid at the same time. They've got such great knowledge and such foolishness. Foolishness and wisdom are not the same as knowledge. There can be such foolishness there. So, so what is wisdom? Well, it's got a lot to do with love. You don't really have much wisdom unless you've learned to love. There's a, a theologian, a Roman Catholic theologian. I don't very often quote Roman Catholic theologians. But there's a Roman Catholic theologian who says, love is the lamp of knowledge. That's right. Love is like a kind of lamp. It, it enlightens things. It, it makes you understand. Love is the lamp of knowledge. There's some truth in that. And uh, you're not wise unless you know how to love. You're not wise unless you can control your temper. You're not wise unless you can stop yourself when you're getting angry. You're not wise if you can't preserve your peace. Remember what Jesus says to um, the disciples on the Thursday before he was crucified. He was crucified upon a Friday. He spent the evening with them on a Thursday with the Lord's Supper that we will turn to in a moment. And he said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Notice that. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And here he is, have to be crucified. And Jesus says, well, it's very, it's very upsetting, but don't you let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He ha- he's telling them that in the midst of his situation where he's going to be crucified, within, within 12 hours, they're going to see him hanging upon a cross, being crucified. Uh, crucifixion was not fun, I can tell you. But uh, they're going to see him being crucified, and Jesus says, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives unto you, so I give it unto you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Have a double faith in the Father and in Jesus, and you'll be all right. That's wisdom. You're wise if you can maintain your peace. You're wise if, no matter what happens to you, you can stay at peace. You can handle yourself. You don't let your hearts. Notice that word again. You don't let your hearts be troubled. Or wisdom... Is, is when you can be content. And I, I think of what Paul said in Philippians. They, they gave Paul some money at certain points. Paul was, he didn't have much money, but people helped him and supported him. And the Philippians sent him a gift, and he wanted to say thank you. But he was very careful the way in which he said thank you. In, in Philippians, when he's saying thank you for this gift, he's very careful how he says it. He says, I'm not speaking of being in need. He says, I don't, I don't want you to think I'm taking money for you because I'm really starving and if you don't give me some money, I'll be in trouble. I don't, I don't want you to think that. I'm, I'm not really in need, he says. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. 
I know how to abound. He's actually talking about money. I know how to be destitute and have no money. I know how to have plenty of money. What to do with this? I've learned in every situation I'm in to be all right. So I, that, you don't have to give to help me, says Paul. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Uh, I know how to, uh, to be abased and how to abound. He's talking about money and circumstances and wealth and, and prosperity. I have learned, I have learned. You see, here's spiritual learning. Here's spiritual progress. Here's a man growing in, in his heart. He's able to cope with life. I have learned the secret. This is something which people do not normally know. It's a mystery. People don't understand it. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not Christ will do all things for me. Not I can do all things. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he says. That's wisdom. When you can cope with anything. No matter what situation you're in, you're right. When you're in trouble, when you're in health, when you're in sickness, when you're in wealth, when you're in poverty, whether your family's breaking up, whether your children are sick, whether somebody's died, you can face anything. Your heart is, a, a, is right. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let, learn to be able to cope. You can abound. If, if, if you're rich and wealthy and prospering, it's not going to your head. You're not getting boastful. You're not getting puffed up because you're so rich. No, no, you, you, keep, you keep cool and just know what to do with what God's giving you. And if you've got nothing, it makes no difference. The Lord is with you anyway. In every situation, you know where you are. That's wisdom. That's, that, that's, my, that's my attempt to describe wisdom. I'm trying to describe wisdom. Wisdom is openness. That If God speaks to you, don't harden your heart. Keep your heart open. Keep your heart, as it were, soft and uh, open to God. So, I'm asking you this morning, are you conscious of the heart? Are you conscious of the soul? Are you conscious that there's more in life than just your circumstances and your situation? You see, the, the modern person, the modern man, when I use that phrase, the modern person or the modern man, uh, nowadays I should say postmodern, the, the postmodern man who's you know, surrendered a lot of things. History develops over centuries. And the reason, one reason why we don't really know, notice what's going on in our culture is because it's been around for a hundred years. If, if, you think, if you think in centuries, you realize that uh, 500 years ago people were totally different. 500 years ahead, they'll be different again. And we're just in a certain situation for the moment. It, it, history moves very, very slowly. It changes over the, over the centuries. But the 21st century person doesn't seem to know anything about his soul or his self. He's only bothered, have you ever noticed this? Do you see this? He's only bothered about his circumstances. Uh, listen to the politicians and the newspapers and the journalists and they're talking about the world. What are they talking about? What is it they want to deal, deal with? Well, they want to deal with poverty. They want to deal with health. Uh, they want to deal with, with democracy. They, they want to be, there to be freedom in the various countries. If you think about it, all those things are our circumstances. Here's a man. He can be poor at one point. He can be rich at another point. But he is the same. His circumstances have changed, but, but he's the same. Hundred years ago, someone would travel somewhere on a bicycle. Today, maybe we fly over the channel by Eurostar and get there in and out to Paris in an hour. You think, oh, life has changed now, life has changed. I mean, years ago, you had to go somewhere with a bicycle on the back of a horse, now you get in the train, you're in Paris in an hour. Things, life is different, it's a modern man. No, it's not true. 
Because although the man used to travel at five miles an hour, now he travels at a hundred miles an hour, the man himself has not changed. The fact that he's going faster does not mean he's a different person. He, he was a, a, slow, a slow-moving sinner, now he's a fast-moving sinner, but he's still a sinner. He has, he has not changed. The person has not changed. And this is the thing that the 21st century doesn't seem to realise very much. We're dealing with hygiene and economics. You, you, you put money into Africa, new inventions. Have you noticed, as soon as you get a new invention, a new invention, you get a new crime. You invent the computer. On a Monday, on a Tuesday, some criminal knows how to use your computer for his crimes. <laughs> All that happens is, is, is that sin uses the new invention. And then you have another invention to, to sort of handle the sinners. Uh, the life is going around in circles. What's controlling everything is the sinfulness and the wickedness and the person himself. But no matter what you do with the, your tools and your situation, your health, your hygiene, your money, your, your prosperity, the politics, the democracy, you're not dealing with the person. It is the person that needs to be, to be handled. You can, you can be in, in, in an Islamic country where you're not allowed to move and you're a lady and your eyes show, or you can be free and walking around in great freedom. But you see, the culture is not the important thing. The important thing is you. I had supper a couple of years ago with a a Muslim princess. She was the daughter of a sheikh in a certain Arabian country. And for various complicated reasons that I won't go into, wanted to see me. She was the patron of a museum, and for various reasons she wanted to see me. I went out to supper with this Muslim princess and we had a good, interesting evening talking together and we got talking about, about covering up, about, about uh, boer cars and, and buoy buoy, what, what we call a buoy buoy in, in, uh, in Swahili. And uh, she hated, she hated having to cover up. I don't, I don't like all, the, all these men, they make, they make us cover up, she said. But then when we, when we got talking, what she hated was the colour. She said, you know, the men, they, they cover themselves up in white. We have to cover ourselves up in black. It's so hot under these black things. If only we could cover up in white. She was only bothered about what colour was covering her up. <laughs> and I said to her, what really matters is not whether you're covered up or whether you're not covered up, but what's going on under the cover. What, what, what's happening to you? And we got talking about polygamy and our daughter, her daughter was there. And I said to her, you know, when you get married, do you really want four husbands? You want your husband to have four wives? And she said, yes, yeah, I'm so glad he's going to have four wives. And I said, why? You know, I can't imagine a woman wanting a husband to have four wives. She said to me, well, they're going to do it anyway. At least we know who they are. <laughs> that was her view of, of, of mankind. But, uh, you see, here we are struggling with whether we're covering up or... Or, or what our situation is. The real thing that matters is what's going on under the covering. What about you? What's the state of your hearts? Are you a person of love and contentment and wisdom? Can you cope in trouble? What's going to happen to you? What will happen to you when you die? So, this particular verse of mine tells us that what determines whether you're wise or whether you're a fool. What's de- what determines what's coming out of your lips? Whether you say, no God, I don't want God. What's determining what's happening to you? What's determining you is you, is the state of your heart. Well, that leads me then, it must lead me. Uh, you, you ought to be able to guess where I'm going. Can you guess my next, next point? You ought to be able to. The gospel is offering you a new heart. 
The very essence of the Christian faith is that God is offering to give you and me and everybody, he's offering to give us a new heart. That's what the gospel offers. Jesus says, Jesus is offering to make us a new person, to deal with a new heart. And the promise of the, of the gospel is, I will take away the heart of stone, the heart that is insensitive and callous and, and you can't do anything with it, and I'll, I'll give them a heart of flesh. I'm quoting Ezekiel 36. I'll take away this rock-like, hard, insensitive heart of theirs and I'll give them a heart of flesh. I'll sprinkle them clean. I'll wash and cleanse the heart and make their hearts pure within. And I'll put a new spirit, a new attitude within them. And then I'll give them my spirit. I'll put the Holy Spirit, I'll cleanse them from within and then I'll put my Holy Spirit into their heart and they will be born again. They will be new people. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is offering us. Jesus is not, is not just offering us to make us a bit more religious, or a bit more moral, so we don't lie or steal quite so much as we used to. It's not, it's not that. It's something bigger and greater. What God is offering us in the person of Jesus is a new heart. Uh, Nicodemus, that Pharisee Nicodemus, came to Jesus, and he wanted to talk to Jesus, I suppose he wanted to talk to Jesus about politics. He comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher, come from God. Nobody can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. And when he says we, we know, who are the we? He means him and his friends. He's a parliamentarian. He comes from the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's a kind of leader of Jerusalem, in, of, of Jewish people in Jerusalem. And Jesus brushes aside all of his talk. Doesn't even let, let him get to his question. Jesus butts in. And he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you, are, you want me to give you a little bit of advice about how to run parliament or something, you're wasting your time. Unless you're born again, unless you become a new, unless you become a new person, unless you're born again, unless you're born of water, he's thinking of Ezekiel 36, where we get washed. Unless you're, unless you're washed, unless you're born of the Spirit, he's thinking of Ezekiel 36. Are, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know about Ezekiel 36? Unless you're born again, you can't see, you can't enter, you have nothing to do at all with the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is offering us. A new birth, a new heart, a new nature. And, and all these other things that we need, they all come with the new heart. When you get a new heart, you get a new mind. You begin to see things. I don't know whether any of you, any of you are saying this morning, I've never, I've never heard things like this. I've never thought about things like this. Well, I say to you, when you're born again, you will. You'll, you'll see some things that you never ever dreamed of thinking about before. You, you won't just think about your poverty or your health or your hygiene or your medicine or your holidays or your circumstances. You'll begin to think about yourself. The first thing you ever do is you will change your mind. You will rethink. Jesus said, repent and believe. The first thing you do, even before you believe, is you rethink. You, you, you have a new mind. You see, you see things you didn't, you didn't see before. You see yourself as a sinner. You see yourself as needing forgiveness. You, you know you want a new nature. It's not just making promises or promising, promising to be different or better. You need to be different. The person needs to be different. Unless a person is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers you a new mind. He offers you a new sensitivity. You see, we can be, we can be hard by nature. We are hard and, and we become harder. Have you discovered that? As life, comes on, life goes on, you get harder unless God stops it. I'm sure you've all been to school with somebody, you went to school with some friend, you were friends as teenagers, 
and then you don't see them for, for years. And then one, one day, you, maybe you're on Facebook or something, and, and you, you meet some, some old friend of yours you've not seen for 20 years. You go and see your old friends, and you've not seen him for 20 years, you went to school with him. And you don't like him very much. And you say to yourself, well, you know, he's, he's harder than he used to be when we were at school together. You know, he's got, he's got a bit callous. And the guy that you liked 20 years ago, you don't like today. The poets often think about it. Do you know, is, is, it William Wor- is it William Wordsworth who said, trailing clouds of glory do we come? He had, he had an idea that we, we come from heaven even before we're born. Trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. But shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. You know that line from William Wordsworth? Shades of the prison house. When we're young, we're free, we've got lots of ambitions, and we're going to do this in life and that in life. But as we go older, shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy. And as life goes on, you're in bondage, you're in a kind of prison. And you get hard, and your marriage starts breaking down, and you can't control yourself, and you get into addictions and things, things in your life you can't break. You promise you'll be different, but, but actually you're not different, and you have a middle-age crisis because all of your dreams are not really coming about. Shades of the prison house. We tend to become hard. What God is offering us is a new heart which is soft and tender. where we're not getting into bondage and hardness, but we learn how to love, where we learn how to be at peace, where we learn how to rejoice, where we know something of what the Bible calls joy, joy unspeakable. The Bible speaks of joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's almost like being in heaven already. Full of glory. It's as though you're in heaven already. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control and meekness, faithfulness. These things which are they're the fruit that come from the Holy Spirit being in your life. You, you're not going to get them otherwise. They're the fruit of the Spirit. He'll give you a soft heart, a, 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 calm, a calm and peaceful heart. It's a new mind. It's a new sensitivity. And then I would say it's a new willpower. You can actually stop thing, doing things which you used to do. You can break addictions. It's not so difficult to break addictions. The secret of breaking addictions, I don't just mean drugs and cigarettes and booze, I mean any kind of addictions. Bad temper, quarrelsomeness, pessimism, gloominess, these addictions of the, of the spirit. You can break them as well. You can become a new person. You've got the ability to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you, and you break things that you were never able to break before. You have a new willpower. It's mainly a matter of joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy puts energy in you. Joy gives you strength, both physically and spiritually. Joy puts energy in you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So you have a new mind, a new willpower, a new sensitivity. It comes from Jesus. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, I can tell you it comes through the cross. Nicodemus, that man I quoted, got interested. Nicodemus said, oh, how can these things be? And if you read the story, John, John, John's Gospel, chapter 3, you'll see at that point Jesus changed the subject. He didn't talk anymore about being born again. He changes the subject. And instead he talks about the cross. He says, oh, you want to have this new birth? Well, I need to tell you 
as Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he began to talk about his, his death upon the cross. God so loved the world, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not get hard and dry and ruining his life, he's perishing, should not perish, but have ever, everlasting life. He comes alive, he comes alive, he's born again through believing in that cross. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why, that's why we have the bread and the wine. On that Thursday night, before he was crucified on the Friday, he said, there's one thing that I, I want you never, never, never to forget. Every time you meet, you, you must remember it. This bread, it means that I died for you in my body. I was literally there hanging upon the tree in my body. It wasn't a ghost or an illusion or a fiction. It's a fact of history. I was bearing your sins in my body on the tree. And you drink the wine. It looks a bit like blood anyway. Red juice, it looks a bit bloody. It stands for my blood. It's a reminder that I was slaughtered upon the cross. I was shedding my blood. I didn't die of old age or malaria. I was being slaughtered. It was a sacrifice upon the cross. And I was being slaughtered as the punishment of sin so that your sins don't have to be punished. I was bearing your sins in my body on the tree. The secret of this new heart is Jesus and his cross. You come to the Lord Jesus. And it doesn't stop when you become a Christian. It starts when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you're born again. But it's not the end of it. God has to go on working. He has to go on sensitizing you. And uh, you have to want this new heart. You pray as David prayed. Remember David prayed, Lord, create in me. What do you, what do you desire is a sincere heart. Create in me a new heart. Put a new and the right spirit within me. He prays for that. Do you go after the new heart? You go after the new man. Paul says, put on the new man. You ask God to expand and develop and improve this new heart you've got, you've got so that you grow in love and grow in sensitivity, grow in openness to God, grow in kindness and mercy. Your heart, your very being, is changing from one degree of glory to another, says the Bible. It all begins with the cross. It all begins when you accept that you're forgiven. God has to be gracious to you before you'll be gracious to anybody else. God has to say, I'll save you, and when I save you, the person, not just your situation, but you, the person, I'll forgive you, I'll cleanse you, I'll give you a new heart, a new nature, and you keep on coming back to this cross because this is the, the thing that bought your new nature. It paid the price for your new nature. You keep on coming back, and I tell you again, your sins are forgiven. I tell you again, you're my people. I tell you again, I die for you upon the cross. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Eat me, drink me, take this, take this into your system. Take this cross of Jesus into your life. It will change you. Unless you eat my body, unless you drink my blood, in this ceremonial, symbolic way. Unless you eat my body, unless you drink my, my blood, you have no life in you. But if you feed upon the cross, if you see what Jesus did for you upon the cross, and know that you're forgiven, and you remind yourself that this salvation cannot be lost, your sins have been paid for, you live upon the mercy and the tenderness of Jesus, you keep on living that way, it will sensitize your heart. And you won't be the fool who says, no God, You'll be the wise man, the wise woman who says, I've got God in my life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for saving me. The fool says, no God. The wise person says, oh, Lord, thank you so much that you're my God. And the goodness and mercy will follow me 
all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And dare I ask you, are you a fool or are you wise? Have you learned to go after God and get the new heart, guard the heart? Because out of it flow all the issues of life, says the Bible. So let's take part in this Lord's Supper. I'm not quite sure how we do it. Have I got it right? You just come and help yourself. Have I got it right? Let's just remember what happened. Jesus took that bread on that last day. He took that wine. He said, this bread, it stands for my body. It is my body, symbolically. It means that you're believing that I died for you literally, physically, bore your sins. The, the bread stands for the body of Jesus. The wine stands for his shedding his blood as a sacrifice. The eating stands for believing. You eat with the body, but as you eat with the body, you believe with your heart, with your person. The eating stands for believing. You're believing that this saviour is there for you still. That he's still the one who died for you. He's still the one whose, whose blood uh, avails and, and uh, works for you. You're expressing your faith all over again by believing. The one loaf stands for the fact that we all do it. We only, do, we have, do we have only one loaf? Symbolically, we have only one loaf. The one loaf stands for the fact that we're all believing in this one saviour. It's what makes us the people of God together. So come, come eat and drink and share, share the bread and the wine together.